Hey everyone, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. It will also be on the screen, um, but if you want to take your own Bible or your pew Bible, the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. It's a, a, a gathering of three particular parables of Jesus, the parable of the hundred sheep of which one was lost, the ten coins of which one was lost, and then the two sons, uh, more commonly known, the parable of the prodigal son. But we're going to read the whole chapter together. And a couple of weeks ago when I was here, we looked in some uh, extent at the parable focusing on the uh, youngest son. And we'll recap that a little bit, but then we'll focus more on uh, the oldest son. So reading from Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And now we'll pick up where we'll focus today. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. So reflect with me for a moment about the concept of waiting. Ever been in a doctor's office and been forced to wait? Your appointment's at 10, but now it's 11.24. Are you irritated? Or you go to Tawasson, you have to be in Nanaimo or in Victoria at a particular time. You're on time but the boat has a mechanical issue and you have to wait three sailings. How do you feel? Are you angry? Are you frustrated? I hate waiting. When I make a dental appointment, I insist that I have the first appointment of the day. When I make an appointment to get my hair cut, my Barbara knows I want the first appointment of the day, that way I don't have to wait. I don't know why that is. It just irritates the daylights out of me. Maybe it does you too. But we are confronted in this particular story of Jesus, which is probably amongst the best known of his stories, with a father who waits, and who waits patiently, for his sons. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, these, these par- this parable stands in a context. It, it is addressed to a specific group of people. They are people who are mutterers. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see that Jesus is attracting people to him, people who are best left to the side, in their opinion. But they come and they meet with Jesus, and Jesus has fellowship with them. He eats with them. He breaks bread with them. And later this morning, we will break bread and drink wine with Jesus. And they're irritated. And they mutter. This man associates with sinners. And he eats with them. And that is what inspires these stories. These stories about lostness and about waiting in recovery. The story of a hundred sheep of which one gets lost. And 
The shepherd goes and leaves the 99 and searches until he finds and then rejoices because there is a return. There is, in the biblical term of it, repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Or in the catechism's words, a dying away of the old self and a coming to life of the new. And then there is a narrowing down from a hundred sheep to ten coins. The coin got lost. We're not sure how. Perhaps a grandchild played with it and let it just sort of drop and then couldn't find it and hope grandmother wouldn't notice. But she did. And she searches and finds and says to her friends, rejoice with me. And then the point is made in heaven. There is great cause of joy because of one who repents rather than of the nine who do not need to repent. A powerful lesson. And then Jesus continues. Now, a hundred have gone to ten, have gone to two. There are two sons. And last time we looked at this younger son who in effect said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Please give me my share of the estate. Because as a youngest son, he would get a third. And so I speculated maybe the estate was worth $3 million and he got $1 million. And he liquefied it all and he gathered it together and he went to a far country and he squandered everything that he had. He lived like a prodigal. He lived excessively. Until one day the purse was empty. And then he was reduced to the need to feed pigs. That's a powerful element in the story because pigs were unclean to people of Jewish descent and they would have shuddered at the very thought of it. And then he wishes that he could eat the pig's food, but no one offers him any. And then, and this is a pivotal phrase, he came to his senses. He, he began to think for himself and he had some self-talk. He muttered to himself, you know, in my father's house, there are servants, and the servants have a place to stay, and they get three squares a day. It's better for them than it is for me here. I'm going home, and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but take me back as a hired servant. And so he goes, and the father, who hasn't been searching, but has been waiting, sees him coming, and he runs, even though Aristotle had taught that great men do not run in public. And the Jews understood that you know the nature of the man by how he walks. But the father runs, picks up his robe, and he runs because he doesn't want any of these mutterers to get a hold of his son and throw a stone at him for being so disrespectful to a father so long ago. And the son launched into his, into his uh, speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And the father says to the servants, Quick, get the best robe, one of mine, get a signet ring, put it on his fingers, put sandals on his feet, because sons wear sandals, slaves go barefoot. And kill the fattened calf, because... The kingdom of God is a party. 
That's why Nelson's friend says, I want to have a party because I know where I am going. I know where God has been waiting for me and preparing a place for me, and I know it will be good. I think universally the story is loved because it is a story that illustrates what we so all desperately need. The benevolent heart of our God turned towards us, ready to embrace us, ready to welcome us home, no matter how poorly we have lived with all his good gifts to us. It's a wonderful story of grace, which stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, a receiving of what we do not deserve but what we desperately need. Meanwhile, while all of this was unfolding, the eldest son was out in the field. And it brings into focus an issue that we need to struggle with and deal with. We love to be recipients of grace. Because grace provides for us what we so desperately need. But are we willing to live and to act graciously towards others? Are we willing to reflect the very heart of God, the love of God, towards others? Because after all, others need to be deserving. Otherwise, we're just going to promote moral decline and financial irresponsibility. We have to draw the line and we have to say, you need to behave in a certain way. And I think all of us can be very prone to that. And so we need to deal with the issue of being recipients of grace, are we willing to be bestowers of grace? The oldest son has particular characteristics. I will just list, list three. Number one, he is responsible and he is engaged. He is his father's son and he is out in the field and he is working. You can imagine if you had a son or a daughter and they begin to pick up some of the things that you want them to do. I was reading uh, about Michelle Obama's latest book and she was talking about parenting and about raising her children and she said that her mother had taught her you should never do for your child what your child is capable of doing for your, themselves. And so she said, we made our daughters make their own beds and expected that to happen. Didn't always happen, but when they began to, make their own beds without being told, we felt satisfied. They were displaying responsibility. This man, the son of his father, was out in the field and he was working. We're not given the details of his work. Was he, 
Was he leaning on the hoe? Was he hoeing? Was he supervising? To put it in more uh, uh, modern terms, was he driving the combine or was he standing to make sure that everything was operating well? We're not told, except that he was out in the field and that he was working. He was responsible and he was engaged. The second thing that we can learn about this man is that he was obedient. He knew the authority structure. He respected his father. He had no thought of saying to his father, I wish you were dead. He listened to his father, and when he dialogues with his father, he says, I have always obeyed you. I have always done what you told me to do. I was obedient. I was there. And once again, if it's one of your children, one of your family, you would look at that and say, that's good. I'm happy with that child. But he's also got a third characteristic. And that characteristic is that he was a person who was not afraid to exercise authority. He comes from the field and he hears this noise of a party unfolding. And he calls a servant. And the servant obeys him. The servant comes and he says to the servant, what's going on here? And the servant explains everything. Well, yeah, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf, and we are having a party. He wasn't afraid to exercise authority. He calls, he demands an accounting, and he hears it. And once again, you would look at that person and say, I'd be proud to have him as my son, responsible and engaged, a person who's obedient, and a person who takes authority when it is required and gets an explanation when it is needed. Not bad. And then there's a twist in the story, a, a, a point of change, because now this person displays an emotion. Earlier, his younger brother had displayed an emotion as well. He had started out by being disrespectful and greedy and greedy, and then he displays an emotion of despair and fear because he knows that his life's on the edge and he's very vulnerable. And the older brother, he displays an emotion of anger. Have you ever been really, really, really angry? Angry to the point of rage? Angry to the point of willing to be destructive? It's a fearful thing, actually. But he is that angry, and he refuses to go in. He crosses his arms, and he says, no, no. And then the father comes and looks for him. See, that's different than with the youngest son. The father had waited for him. He knew that looking for him 
would not at that particular point have profited him. And so he waits. And when he sees him coming, he runs. He sees his oldest son not coming, and he goes out and he searches for him. And then he pleads. He pleads. Think about that for a moment. He pleads. The father becomes a beggar. My son, he says, you have to come in. We're not told what the father actually says. It just says that he pleads. So I would ask you, if you are going to plead with one of your children, either presently or perhaps sometime in the future if you don't have children now, what would you do? What would you say? How would you say it? Would you look him in the eye? Would there be tears? Would there be a choke in your throat? How intense would you feel about this? The father pleads. And the son says, look. Now I think the scripture is very sanctified here. I don't think we would have used such kind language. We would have probably used a word that begins with a B and has an S in the middle. Look! This son of yours. Not this brother of mine. No. Nah, he's already taken distance. This son of yours. This disrespectful, greedy, self-centered slob who took yours and squandered it in wild living. This son of yours. He doesn't deserve my consideration. And then the father pleads again. The first time wasn't effective. And so he pleads again. He says, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive. You, see, you notice the switch? This son of yours, this brother of yours, and, and then he addresses the son's attitude about himself. I have slaved for you all of my life. Stop to think about that for a moment. You look at yourself and you see yourself as a slave, as a person who has no right, no freedom, no responsibility, even though he had displayed responsibility and engagement and authority and obedience, but he felt like he had no, no choice, he had no liberty, and, and you didn't even give me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But you squandered one-third of your estate on your squandering son. And then the father says, but my son, all that I have 
is yours. All that I have is yours. Start acting like a son. You don't need to ask for permission. You are my child. You have authority in this estate. Act like a responsible, authoritative human person. All that I have is yours. It, it, there seems to be an underlying message here, and that is, well, my, your younger brother already squandered one-third of the estate, and if you're afraid that, that you know, he's going to get an under, other third of what's left over, don't worry about it. All that I have is yours. There are consequences to his behavior, but he is still my son, and he is still your brother. And then notice the power of the words, we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And now the family is complete again. Just like the flock of sheep was complete again. And the necklace of ten coins was complete again. This family is complete again. And we had to celebrate. But now, now you need to ask, answer this question. What happened next? Did the older brother go into the party? Or did he stay out? What happened next? We're not told. You and I have to finish the story. Now, we can speculate a little bit about what happened because we know the original audience of these three parables. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the mutterers. They were the people in focus. If you go on to chapter 16, the audience changes. The audience becomes his disciples. But now the audience is the mutterers, the complainers, the Pharisees, the tax collectors. He, he meets with sinners and he eats with them. And what do they do? They arrest Jesus. They nail him to a cross. They mock him. He dies. That's what happened. The only one of the Pharisees that we know seemed to have disagreed with it were Nicodemus who came to him in the darkness of the night and said, you know, teacher... And then he was taught about being born again. And Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body down from the cross and laid it in the tomb that had been prepared for him. They're the only ones from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who engaged with Jesus. The rest yelled, crucify him, and away with him. He doesn't deserve to live. So we know that. But what about me? And what about you?
because I am the oldest son. And it is my decision about whether I keep the father doing what I hate to do myself. And that is wait. Has he heard from you? Have you come to say to him, I am sorry for my sin. I need a savior. And I thank you that Jesus was nailed to the cross so that I could have a way home. We know those words well. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But it would be wrong to narrow that concept of the way to just simply a geographical path. Just like this path here, highlighted in a different color, is the path out and a path in. It is not only a path, but it is a manner. It is how we live. It is how we act. It is how we speak. It is how we conduct ourselves. It is the way in which we act. And it is my prayer that all of us will come to act graciously in a world that is broken. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story. The story that Jesus told to a group of people who were not approving of him. I pray, Lord God, that as we come to the table in a few moments, that we may come knowing that we are recipients of grace, but that we may also come knowing that we need to live graciously. Help us not to keep you waiting. Help us to recognize that today is the day of salvation. Help us to recognize that you are ready to hear us when we come in repentance, saying that we need a Savior. So fill us up, Holy Spirit. Empower us. We humbly ask it in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus himself. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.